2 Samuel 11. In the spring, at the time when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to, sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David that I am pregnant. Now a quick summary of verses 6 through 22. David sends for Uriah the Hittite. He meets with him, invites him to eat and drink with him. Then Uriah goes back to war. David deliberately puts Uriah in a position where he will get killed. We pick up the account with the report of the battle in verse number 23. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Thanks, Ryan, for reading that to us. Um, Just to say, this is a difficult reading. It's not an easy one. There are some themes in there that are not really suitable for all ages, but I'm conscious that there may be people of all ages either watching or listening, so I will be very sensitive in how I deal with some of these themes. There won't be anything that is remotely inappropriate this morning as we talk about it. Can I just pray as we unpack what is this really difficult account? Lord, when we look at the life of David, we come face to face with a man who in one Sentence is described as a man after your own heart, but then does the most terrible things. And Lord, we see in that a reflection of how we sometimes are, that we fail you, that we don't live our lives how you call us to live them. And so Lord, we pray as we unpack these difficult verses that you will help us to be inspired again to a life of holy obedience, a life of joyful service for you. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Last Sunday, Richard Branson flew to the edge of space. I don't know if you saw this in the news. It got rather overshadowed by the World Cup and by, uh, not the World Cup, the Euros, and by the tennis final as well, if you were watching that. Now, Richard Branson flew in this thing, the Virgin Galactic spaceship, and he went 53 miles above the Earth. That is three miles into space, just three miles. And if you're feeling like you want to join him, This will be offered commercially from next year. Um, There is a waiting list. There are 600 people booked in. But if you want to become the 601st person and you've got a spare £180,000 to book a ticket, I'm sure he'd be delighted to welcome you on board. Why? Why on earth would you want to go on a tourist spaceship to the edge of space? Why are other billionaires trying to do space tourism and fly to the edge of space? 
Well, human beings, we have always been those who push boundaries. Now, in a lot of ways, that is a great thing. We are made in the creative image of God. We make things, we create, we explore, we look at the world that God has put us in. And that can be energizing, it can be great, it can be really positive. We do all kinds of things through that motivation. But there is a dangerous flip side to seeking new experience. There is a dangerous flip side. Because if it's not rooted in things that God wants for us, if it's not um, deeply into God's word, if the world isn't enough, and sorry for the slightly James Bond-esque title here, we will find that we become not content, not fulfilled, and it can lead us down dangerous paths. It can lead us down dangerous paths. At the start of chapter 11, David is the man who has it all. He has it all, at least from a 980 BC perspective. He is anointed by God as king. He has a number of successful events in his back catalogue. He is the giant slayer. He's the bringer of the ark into Jerusalem. He's a brilliant poet and musician. The people love him. He's got this amazing army that seems to defeat everyone that comes against him. And his rule and reign as king of Israel is firmly established. He knows that God has appointed him to this role. He has confidence that God has appointed him. And he's gone from shepherd boy, from a nobody, to the ruler of a great nation. He has gone from a nobody to right at the top of the political power spectrum. But in these verses, that is not enough for David. Sadly, that is not enough. David, in previous weeks, we've seen was a man who sought to please God. He was willing to change direction if God called him to. He was a man after God's own heart, a man used by God. Now, sadly, today, David becomes a man who pleases himself. He becomes a man who starts to do the thing that he wants, that he desires. He's got no boundaries, there's no accountability, and it puts himself at great risk. And you know, we face the same. If we have a life that's unaccountable to anybody, we too can be put in risk. But what do we do if we feel we've had everything and it's still not enough, if the world is simply not enough. Well, David knew what to do. He wrote about it in the Psalms. You know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You find contentment in God, you press into God, you receive the life-giving waters that the Holy Spirit brings to us. So what was David up to? Well, he was bored, possibly. I want to suggest that. Bored. David, in verse 1, the writer makes it pretty clear that he should have gone to war. Now, in the ancient world, countries were not like countries are now. There were no defined boundary lines. There were no checkpoints. You didn't have a passport. You couldn't travel freely from one place to another. It was much more um, sort of a hodgepodge of individual states vying with each other. And this was the case for David. He would constantly have to be on his guard, protecting the national interests, fighting battles to keep the Philistines out, the Hittites out, whoever it was that was attacking Israel. And what used to happen was in spring, after the winter rains had finished, the armies would go out and they would fight battles to keep the land safe. That was David's responsibility as king, to keep the people safe. It's any ruler's responsibility, is to keep the people safe. But David here doesn't go. He doesn't go to war. Rather, he stays at home. He abdicates his kingly role and passes it over to Joab. Is he taking his eyes off the Lord here? Well, God doesn't say anything to David about taking a sabbatical. He doesn't say anything about, well, you, David, take a period of reflection and stay at home. He doesn't say have some time off. And so we can only presume that the writer is saying this here 
in a negative way. David isn't doing what God wanted him to do. Now, we shouldn't read into Scripture. Absolutely, we shouldn't read into Scripture. But we can use our imaginations. And we can try and think of the kind of reasons why David might have stayed at home. Is he just bored? Is he bored with being a king? Does he not want to fight another battle? Does he just want his home comforts? Has he just become complacent? Is he just thinking, well, let's get somebody else to do the difficult work for a moment? Well, whatever the reasons, he's at home when he should have been away. And in verse 2, he gets out of bed and he goes for a walk on the palace roof. Now, just to be clear, the palace roof was flat, just in case you're thinking of somebody wandering around a pitched roof. Now, I sometimes walk our dog late in the evening, and I do that because it's quiet, it's peaceful, there's no one around, and it, it sounds like I'm a Victorian, but I like to take the night air. You know, it's that kind of really peaceful time in the evening where everything is cooling down, especially at this time of year. David is not taking the night air. He's got up out of bed, and he's probably not able to sleep. Something is getting under his skin, and he's pacing round the roof. That's the kind of imagery we get here. He's in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he sees what he shouldn't have seen. He sees what he shouldn't have seen. I don't know if you've noticed that temptations are often stronger at night. The temptation to fall into sin when we're on our own, under the cover of darkness, is often much more pressing than it is in the full daylight. And so he captures a glimpse of Bathsheba, described as a beautiful woman. But rather than turning away, ignoring and going back to bed, he starts to make inquiries. He tries to find out who she is, and he finds out who she is. He finds out she's married. And then he fails. He fails. He grossly misuses and abuses his power as king, and he sends for her. They start a relationship, even though she is married, and he breaks the sixth commandment, do not commit adultery. Things quickly spiral out of control. By the end of the chapter, David has made it look like he was king. He was friends with her husband, Uriah. He invites Uriah around for a meal. They, they eat and drink together. But then he deliberately gets him killed in battle in a stupid attempt to try and cover his tracks. Breaking the fifth commandment, do not murder en route. David is failing badly and quickly. And at the end of the chapter, there was that line, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. God sees everything. God sees and knows it all. He knows what goes on in the daylight. He knows what goes on in the darkness. He knows what goes on in our hearts. He knows what goes on in our motivations. David has failed on a big scale. Failure in life is something, to some degree, we all live with, isn't it? None of us do the right thing all the time. But sadly, the, the media likes nothing more than a good scandal. And this is a story of scandal, sort of par excellence, isn't it? You know, David and Bathsheba would hit the headlines. Now, sadly, too often in our media, we see accounts and stories of Christian leaders who hit the headlines for exactly this kind of reason. I don't know if you read those tragic events around Ravi Zacharias, who had been this amazing Christian apologist. But then it turns out that actually his private life and his public persona were just worlds apart. His private life was in chaos while he was trying to portray that he was this very different public figure. Now, when we see that, we can feel angry. We can feel cross. We can feel angry towards David here. David, how were you so stupid? You know, everything was going for you. God was on your side. You should have been pressing into God. Instead, you get sidetracked by this kind of thing. 
Jesus in John chapter 8. There is a woman who is caught in adultery and this woman is brought before Jesus to be condemned. And Jesus simply says, let those who are without sin cast the first stone. If our response to this passage is to think actually we should be finger-wagging at people and respond harshly and judgmentally to others, then I think we grossly miss the point. Jesus in Matthew 7 says, deal with the log in your own eye before you deal with the speck in somebody else's. Use this kind of passage to examine our own hearts. So I want to ask us a question. Where do we risk becoming a David in our lives today? Where do we risk failing God? Where is the world not enough? Are we bored in certain areas of our life? Are we sort of investigating the edges or fringes of sin? Are we pushing boundaries that actually know we know it, if we push it too hard, we will end up in a place where we not only fail God, but we end up in misery in ourselves. This did not end well for David. This all goes horribly, horribly wrong. Now, for David, we know the story. We've got it in front of us. We know what happened. For us, it might not be anything like this situation. It might be something very different. It might be how how we spend our time or how we spend our money or our priorities in life. But suddenly we find we're investigating those fringes of sin. And we start plotting and scheming. Perhaps figuratively, this morning, you're, you're pacing the roof. You're pacing the roof. You're not in that good place with the Lord. You've got complacent. Whatever has happened, your spiritual life is not in that good place. Or perhaps we've actually come off the roof. We've gone down. We've investigated sin. And we're, we're living in a bad place. As we come to communion this morning, we remember that the gospel The good news of Jesus is simply that. It is incredibly good news. There is nowhere we can go that Jesus can't rescue us from. There is no roof we can come down from, no pacing the roof that we can do that Jesus cannot rescue and restore. Now, there is a good news to David. David eventually is confronted by Nathan in the next chapter. He repents and he is forgiven. And it's widely thought that he writes this psalm Psalm 53. Sorry, I'm not, I've got it as 51 or 53. 51. Yeah, don't say that's 53. Psalm 51. I will read it to you here. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant a willing spirit to sustain me. What a plea from David there. Creating me a pure heart. Do you want a pure heart this morning? Do you want that heart that is set free? Do you want the God's spirit to again rest deep within you? Well, when we get off the roof... When we turn around, when we return to God, the gospel reminds us that our Heavenly Father is always there to welcome prodigals. Always there. Stood there, welcoming us home, wanting us to be restored. So can I encourage you this morning, if you're in that place where actually you're thinking, I'm not in a good place. Something in my life is is going wrong. I'm risking becoming a David. Can I encourage you to reach out to the Lord? You will find he is merciful, 
forgiving and restoring. But I want to ask another question. What should David have done? What should he have done? Well, I think he should have been thankful. There's a lot that a thankful heart can stand up against. When we look at our blessings, when we look at all that God has done for us. He should have been fulfilling the the calling that actually God had given him. He should have been continuing as king. He should have kept seeking the Lord for his future. All that went wrong in this chapter happened because he took his eyes off the Lord. You see, when we follow Jesus' example of a holy life, when we actively seek more of the Holy Spirit's power and presence in our life, then we start to become more like him. Now, sin absolutely, totally, and utterly can be forgiven. David will be forgiven. And whilst that is incredibly, incredibly good news, it is also good news that we have been given the Holy Spirit who enables us not to fall in the first place. You know, it's always better not to sin. Always better not to sin. Always better. Do we know the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life? Do we know that cleansing joy that comes? A significant antidote to boredom, to restlessness, to investigating sin is thankfulness. Being rooted in who God is. Thankful for the finished work of Christ. Looking forward to all we have in him and pressing onwards to the goal that we have. Thankfulness grows very different fruit to boredom and complacency. Just have the the PowerPoint back on. This is actually from Ephesians 5. It says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. And praise God, we can do that together next week. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks, always giving thanks. Are we thankful this morning for all that God has done? Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have so much to be thankful for. Let's not not blow it in the way that David did. Let's not do the things that David did. So I want to ask those questions at the end. Are we at risk? I can't answer that for you. I can only answer it for myself, and I can only put those things in place in my own life to ensure that those risk things are dealt with. But are we at risk of failing the Lord? Are we at risk? And secondly, how can we root our lives more deeply in thankfulness? How can we become the kind of person that actually David wasn't in these verses? How can we do that? I'm going to pray for us. Maybe you want to, where you are, just bow your heads. Maybe you just want to spend just a moment in the quiet. And let me pray that we will become and continue to be pressing in to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for all that you have done. We thank you that through your death and resurrection, we can be restored when we have failed. And perhaps today you just need to hold that thought before the Lord. Perhaps come before him. If there's repentance that you need to bring in your own heart before God, that turning around and turning back to him, just a moment to do that. And Lord, I want to pray as well that we will be those who are thankful, those who look to the blessings that we have in life, and those who root our lives deeply in who you are, who have those structures of accountability in our own lives and our hearts, 
that ensure that we remain in you. So Lord, help us. Keep us close, we pray. And as we gather and we take communion in a few moments, Lord, I want to pray that you will just help us to be thankful again for that enormous sacrifice you paid for us, that you gave your life so that we may walk in freedom. So we praise you and we give you thanks. And may we continue to do that in Jesus' name.